It's Full Preterism, a Damnable Heresy, Part 7. And what we're doing is we're looking at Revelation 21, and we're, gonna, we're exegeting it, and then we're interacting with the Full Preterist view. And uh, yesterday I, I looked at some of my Full Preterist books, and uh, I'm just amazed at how little... They, they just don't do hardly... Exegesis is, is uh, wanting. They don't do exegesis hardly at all. But I'm going to read uh, just first eight verses of uh, 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first earth and the first first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. <clears throat> then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Okay, we're going to consider verses one through, 1b through 5. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the water, fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. At the end of verse 1, and this is I've labeled this no more sea. This is where I left off last time because I had a very long introduction. Also, there was no more sea. Now, those who hold to a literal interpretation of this could say that in the new heaven and the new earth, there are no more oceans. God just simply eliminated them. They're no longer needed for evaporation in the formulation of clouds for rain. Now, it's interesting. Before the fall, the weather was far more pleasant and beneficent throughout the whole earth. Adam and Eve did not need clothes to keep warm. And Genesis 2.6 may indicate radical differences in how the earth was watered before the fall and uh, really perhaps before the flood. The worldwide flood. Genesis uh, 7.11 But a mist went up from the earth. Excuse me, that's uh, Genesis 2.6. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the, the, the word mist in Hebrew is an obscure, difficult word, and it could refer to stuff under the ground, or it could refer to mist. We learned from the flood narrative that great amounts of water were released from below. This is Genesis 7:11. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. There were two sources for the flood, the waters below and above. It is indeed possible that our great oceans did not exist before the flood, at least as they now are, covering two-thirds of planet Earth. Yeah, the oceans cover two-thirds of the planet. Perhaps before the flood, they covered a quarter of the Earth. Who knows? The flood of God's judgment for sin brings chaos, a kind of decreation where there was only water. The seven oceans, in a sense, stand as a visible testimony to God's judgment against sin and rebellion. 
If nomorces is literal, then we have here simply a picture of a return to pre-fall paradise on earth. Now we know that the continents all were together at one time to form one giant continent. And if you look at a, a map of the world, you can see they all fit together. And they've slowly been, through earthquakes and the earth shifting, they've been moving away. <clears throat> in addition, great expanses of water with separate continents was useful in the fallen order because wars, bloodshed, and conflict became the norm. The kingdoms of fallen men are better separated both geographically and, of course, linguistically. Men tried to unite together with an evil one-world order under Nimrod, and God divided the Tower of Babel. God divided men linguistically. And it's very interesting. This is one of the great proofs of the Bible being true. All the languages of planet Earth can be traced back to just a small family of languages. There's probably 700 languages or 500 languages. There's a bunch of languages. They can all go back to certain trunks on a tree, which is precisely what the Bible says. Now, given the highly symbolic nature of the book of Revelation, the absence of the seas may signify the complete absence of rebellion and disharmony among mankind after the final state begins. The wicked are at times portrayed in scripture as a stormy sea. In Isaiah 57, 20-21, we read this, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. When you look at a riot, when you look at a giant crowd of people rioting and in conflict, it's like an ocean of, of uh, chaos. And then the beast of Revelation uh, 21.1 rises up out of the, the sea. <clears throat> the ethical chaos and wicked rebellion against God of a people produce political and religious beasts who persecute the saints of God. Now in Revelation 13, the beast is likely the leader or leaders of the Roman Empire. In Revelation 17.15 we read, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The stormy sea of a wicked, godless people produces and supports the wicked, godless rulers. And we see this literally today. I mean, the Bible's so true. Look at where the leftists, the left-wing Democrats have control. San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles. Look at where they, Chicago. <clears throat> what do they create? Ethical chaos, lawlessness, violence, murder, rape, homelessness, drug addicts, zombies walking around the streets, zombied out on trank and fentanyl. That's what sin creates, a restless sea of filth, chaos. The wicked from the least of those powerful are like the raging sea, casting up filth and destruction. In the new heavens and new earth, there is no more stormy sea with its ethical and religious filth that wages warfare against Jesus and his people. When I was in seminary, we did a very intensive study of the Puritans. My, uh, my professor of uh, history, he's now a Lincoln scholar, uh, um, Abraham Lincoln scholar, which is a shame. He was, such a, he was great at apologetics and church history. 
uh, the, the divorce rate and the crime rates among the Puritans, we're talking about the early Puritans before they apostatized into Unitarianism, um, the divorce rate was like 0.02%. <laughs> crime was so rare. The Bible, Christ, the Holy Spirit, brings peace to society as people adopt a biblical law order and implement it. All of Christ's enemies in the future after the second coming have been defeated, judged, and cast into the lake of fire. Consequently, only peace, harmony, and joy remain. Now let's look. That's the ocean. So I've given you the literal view, which is indeed possible. Now, Revelation is a highly symbolic book. The literal view, which makes sense, going back to before the flood. And, of course, the symbolic view. Both, both are excellent. The New, New Jerusalem, this is verse, verses 2 to 3. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. <coughs> now, the New Jerusalem, which is identified as the bride of Christ, is the whole church of Christ in its perfect glorified state. The corporate church, the elect, the invisible church. The earthly Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. The place where the temple and biblical worship was conducted. In the new covenant era, the old temple ceremonial system is abrogated and replaced by the church of Christ. The church is called, in the New Testament, by Paul, God's temple, Ephesians 2.21, and by James, God's tabernacle, Acts 15.16. The New Covenant Church, he says, is the tabernacle of God's being rebuilt. And was progressively being built by God throughout the whole millennium, or New Covenant era. The church is described as holy because the people of God have been set apart and possessed the Holy Spirit. See 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17 and 6, 9. They have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They are God's saints, a holy nation. Hebrews 11, 10 and 16, 12, 22, 13, 14, 1 Peter 2, 9. Professing Christians who persevere and overcome all opposition and persecution will be pillars in the temple of God. Revelation 3, 12. The saints are identified as new because they are citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. The old Jerusalem was called the city of God because God's special presence was in the holy of holies, in the temple. God literally, his special Shekinah presence lived in Jerusalem. Yahweh dwelt among his people. He had communion with them through the sacrificial system that typified Christ and blessed them if they had faith and were covenantally faithful. Now, not only was the old temporal system obsolete and was designed to be temporary, but the Jews rejected their Messiah and they persecuted the church. They persecuted God's saints. When Jesus died on the cross, the temple cultus was set out of gear and the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the very bottom. And we're talking a very large, giant curtain, which was very thick. The material was extremely, as thick as your little finger, and uh, for this to rip from top to bottom was obviously a miracle. 
the Jews in their apostasy caused God to completely destroy Jerusalem and the temple. The end of the Old Covenant order, which occurred definitively the moment Jesus died on the cross, occurred actually and historically by force of Christ's judgment in AD 70. The temple was torn down. And in order to get, the temple had a lot of gold in it, and it had a lot of gold uh, ornamentation, and it, they, the Romans burned it with fire. <clears throat> and the fire melted all the gold. Gold, as you know, melts at a very low temperature. So what did the Romans do? They pried all the stones apart to get the gold out. Not one stone was left upon another. Literally came true. And the temple's still not around today. And the Jews have not had a, a sacrificial system since. <clears throat> the Jews and their apostasy caused God to completely destroy Jerusalem and the temple. The typical temporary form of Jerusalem was ended to give way to the building of the New Testament, the New Jerusalem. The destruction of Israel is not the end of all things, but the end of the old typical obsolete order. The new Jerusalem is the realization of the old. The destruction of Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple is not the end of all things. It's actually more of a beginning. So this AD 70 paradigm of full preterism doesn't make a bit of sense at all, theologically and logically, or exegetically for that matter. During the millennium, the new Jerusalem, as the visible church, is imperfect, for there are tares among the wheat. And not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, really believes in Christ. Matthew 7, 22 to 23. In our day, heresy abounds. There's churches all over. We're in the South here. There's churches all over the place. And they're horrible, the vast majority of them. You might find a small little Reformed church here and there that's pretty good. But the vast majority of churches are Arminian and heretical, dispensational and terrible. Churches are often worldly and culturally compromised. But when Jesus returns, the true church is glorified, made perfect and ready for the wedding ceremony to begin. God will not only dwell in their hearts by the Spirit, and Jesus will not only be spiritually present during the Holy Supper, but the theanthropic mediator will actually dwell among them. You'll be able to go, oh, there's Jesus over there. Oh, there's Paul. There's Peter over here. Oh, there's King David. Literally, this is going to happen. The saints receive perfect, glorified spiritual bodies so they are fit to be in God's special immediate presence. Christ's love will be fully manifested in his people and his resurrection glory will be put upon them. They will experience the perfect joy, bliss, and happiness of the beatific vision. And this is something that at present our bodies, our minds cannot fully comprehend. Now, Muslims, what do they do with heaven? They turn it into a, uh, a carnal thing of sexual lust and drunkenness because it's a perverted religion of Satan. But it's going to be a spiritual thing, and it's going to be amazing, even though we'll have real physical resurrected bodies. The neutralism is observed coming down out of heaven from God. During the New Covenant era, we look forward to a heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, Hebrews 12.22, which Paul calls the Jerusalem above, Galatians 4.26. It is holy because God is there, and the perfect holy souls of the saints dwell there to await the resurrection of the body. 
Everyone who is saved in history is saved because God in heaven revealed himself to mankind on earth. The Son of God came down to earth to achieve a perfect redemption, and the Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven to God's people below. So salvation originates with heaven, and prior to the second coming, every soul of every person saved throughout all of history dwells in heaven. Now that Christ has returned and the saints resurrected, are resurrected and glorified, they meet the Savior in the air, Thessalonians. The resurrected saints come up first, then those who are remain come up to meet Christ in the air, and they descend with him. With the cosmic redemption realized and all the elect glorified, there is a sense in which heaven and earth become one. Now, using the covenant language of marriage, the most intimate relationship among human beings, John describes the wedding ceremony between the bride, the glorified church, and Jesus Christ, her husband. The communion between God and his covenant people in the new covenant era was not perfect, for the church often contained covenant breakers, and even those who were covenantally faithful had to confess their sins to Christ daily. Matthew 6, 12, 1 John 1, 8 to 10. Before the second coming, every Christian had to deal with the flesh, the old man, the sin that still remains in our members, Romans 7, 23. From a judicial perspective, we are perfect, forgiven, absolutely righteous in God's sight. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It can't be any other way. But from the perspective of sanctification, there is a lot of room for, there is always a lot of room for growth and improvement. There is not one who does not sin. Christians deal with sin every single day. The church is full of sin. Because we don't have our perfect bodies yet. We still have to deal with the flesh. That's why we have to be so diligent and fight like crazy against it. But with the coming of Christ and the glorification of the saints, the covenantal communion between Jesus and his people is fully realized and brought to perfection. Paul spoke of this in Ephesians 5, 25b to 27. People usually just skip right over this because they want to deal with marriage between man and woman, but this is the setup for that. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In order that, okay, here's the purpose, here's the reason, in order that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she be holy and without blemish. Now, in principle, the bride of Christ, the church is the bride of Christ in this age. And one could compare our current status to a betrothal. A betrothal in biblical times is far more serious than a modern engagement. The persons were, in a sense, legally married, even though the covenant was not consummated until the day of the public vows and wedding feast. They were consummated. Our sanctification is compared to a time of preparation and adornment in Ephesians. But the ultimate purpose of the salvation process is to be presented ethically perfect and glorified to the bridegroom, to Christ. The fact that Paul is discussing sanctification and the ultimate goal of coming before Christ with absolute perfection assumes consummation. It fits perfectly with Revelation 21 
and the glorified saints, the whole body of Christ, the whole church invisible being presented for the wedding feast. It fits perfectly. Of course, full preterists deny this. They, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. We're going to look at their view in a minute. Moreover, the fact that both Paul and John are speaking of the whole body of Christ, not individuals, as they die and their souls go to heaven, renders our text totally incompatible with the full preterist paradigm. Which is basically, uh, when your soul, some people are saved and their souls go to heaven when they die. That's basically their paradigm. And we'll get to that in a minute. <clears throat> On the basis of the efficacy of Jesus' redemptive work, he sanctifies and prepares the church to present her to himself. When she appears at the wedding feast, she is spotless and faultless, not only judicially, justification, but also personally, glorification. Remember? 1 Corinthians 15, which we looked at. You're going to be given a new body. Your old body is going to be resurrected. And you're going to be given a new body, which is spiritual, which is perfected, which cannot sin, which cannot even be tempted, which cannot get sick. That is the body you need when you're presented to the bridegroom. Our verse in context indicates the whole body of believers are resurrected and glorified to be presented to the Savior. What was progressive and unfolding in history is brought to consummate absolute perfection. <clears throat> the time to celebrate the consummation has come. The perfect bride adorned and triumphant is beautiful due to Christ's work, and thus fully prepared for the wedding feast. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern weddings, especially, I don't know what they're like now, but in the old days, special garments are made for the woman. She's adorned with jewelry. She's adorned with spices and made to smell beautiful. She's made extremely beautiful in preparation to be presented to her husband publicly. And that's what happens, on, but that's all symbolic, of course, of what happens when we're presented to Christ in the, after the Day of Judgment, the consummation. The time to celebrate the consummation has come. The perfect bride adorned, perfect, is ready for the wedding feast. The great bridegroom and the glorified beautiful bride is perfectly united in a state of everlasting love, fellowship, and blessedness. Any system of theology that denies this corporate perfection and consummation denies the full and true meaning of Christ's salvation. And I think that's why, you know, I'm trying to find exegesis. I'm looking through books by full preterists trying... Now, I don't have a lot of books on that. Most of them, when I wrote earlier, I borrowed a lot of them. Because I, I didn't want to spend money on them, I gave them back. So I don't have a lot of books. But the ones I look at, I can't find any detailed exegesis of these passages. There'll be a sentence or two. The most detailed exegesis I found was by Russell, which we'll deal with in a second. <clears throat> now the tabernacle among men. Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. With Adam's fall, man was ordered to leave Eden. Kicked out and no longer walk, walked and talked with Yahweh in the garden, in paradise. And that would have been probably the pre-incarnate Christ, the, the Son, who walked with him, assuming, you know, in the garden, 
It is only through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, that this relationship is fully restored. Before the building of the temple, the special Shekinah presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It was kind of like the temple, but it was all made out of cloth. It was all tent material, so they could move it around and take it with them through the wilderness and so forth. The tabernacle traveled about with the covenant people. Because the people were guilty of sin and were still sinful in their nature, Yahweh could only be approached by the blood of a clean, spotless, perfect lamb. This all points to the truth that it is Christ who establishes and secures the covenant between man and God. The loud voice therefore announces that the everlasting covenant between Yahweh and his people, which has established his peace, reconciliation, fellowship, and communion, has come to perfect completion. Consummation. Jesus' work of redemption has been fully realized. God, or a great angel, announces that with the completion of the salvation of the elect throughout history and the resurrection, glorification, an actual presence with the glorified Redeemer in the new heavens and the new earth, all of Yahweh's covenant promises are fulfilled. It is noteworthy that the statement, they will be his people in Greek, literally says they shall be his people's plural. And I think that's reflected in the New King James. The promise to Abraham that through his seed the whole world would be blessed is now fully realized. When Israel was destroyed in AD 70, this process of leavening the earth with the gospel was near its beginning, not the end. It was just a beginning. You got churches in Japan now. You got church, churches in South Korea. There's probably Christians in North Korea that are in hiding. There's a, a ton of Christians in China. A lot of Christians in China used to listen to my sermons, and then when the Olympics came, it went from like a thousand to zero. They clamped down somehow. They clamp down totally. But there's Christians virtually in every nation today. Even in Muslim countries, even though they're persecuting them and driving them out. The promise to Abraham that through a seed the whole world will be blessed is now fully realized. And that didn't happen in AD 70. That's a fact. It didn't happen in AD 70. This salvific covenant planned by the triune God and perfectly accomplished by Christ through his redemption is the central theme found throughout Scripture. Here are a few examples. I'll just give you a few. I could read pages. Here's Leviticus 26, 11 to 12. I will make my tabernacle among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God. You shall be my people. You shall be my people. And then here's another one. Here's Ezekiel 37, 26 to 28. And I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I'll establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And then... Other passages, Jeremiah 24, 7, 30, 22, 31, 33, 32, 38, Zechariah 8, 8, etc. The worldwide salvation promised to Abraham was definitively achieved by Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. John 1, 14. Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. 
God with us. And that's quoted in the early chapters of Matthew. Christ is the fulfillment. God with us. When our Lord finished his atoning work, he said, it is finished, John 19.30. When Christ returns, God's presence will be with the whole redeemed community completely and perfectly. Completely and perfectly. The final consummation of all of God's plans, promises, and prophecies has been achieved. The presence of God with this church is the purpose of salvation and the glory of the church. In the new heavens and new earth, there are no hindrances or interruptions to perfect fellowship. With the universe and man perfected, both body and soul, living in Christ's immediate presence, the love of God will be fully and perfectly manifested to the whole covenant community. This coming reality is our greatest reward, which will bring us perfect happiness. We have to look to this. We have to look forward to this. Now, of course, the full preterist says all this happened in AD 70. So they have to basically ignore what the passage teaches and make it teach something it doesn't teach. Now let's look at the results of Paradise Restored. Revelation 21.4. I have to give you what the passage teaches to contrast it with the full preterist. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. The new blessed consummate state that is ushered in by the second bodily coming of Christ coincides with the complete removal of sin, the curse on creation, Genesis 3.16-19, Romans 8.19-23, Colossians 1.20, Acts 3.21, the fallen order with its great trouble, sickness, warfare, persecutions, temptations, betrayals, calamities, afflictions, diseases, death, will be forever eliminated by the power of the cross and the empty tomb. Victory! Perfect victory! Not simply with the elect, but cosmically. The whole fallen order is removed, will, will come to pass. God himself will wipe away all of our tears through the redemption of Christ his Son. The fallen earth with its curse and the effects of sin is stained with blood and tears. But the new heavens and earth is redeemed and glorified. Here John alludes to, likely to Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away all tears from all faces. Sin, suffering, and death reigned on earth due to the fall. But all such things come to a complete end with the second coming, bodily resurrection, and final judgment. The cross and empty tomb achieve a total, perfect, unending victory. When the elect are raised and glorified and the universe renewed. That's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches it very clearly. They deny it because they have to fit everything into an AD 70 paradigm, so they have to redefine everything. And that's what heretics do. That's why you don't see detailed exegesis of these passages. I, I, one of the books I grabbed was like 400 pages. And I looked up, what does he say about Revelation 21, verse 3? He had one sentence <laughs> about Revelation 21. In the whole book, he had one sentence. And he basically said, oh, this teaches that people will be saved and go to heaven. That's what it teaches. God's presence with his people, the whole corporate body, like the invisible church, the church triumphant, is proof and the eternal guarantee that the paradise lost is now restored and even more than restored through Christ. The first paradise, man could fall. Man could sin. Man could succumb to temptation. The second paradise is better. Man can't fall. Man can't sin. 
Man can't be tempted. Man can't die. The contrast between what Revelation 21 teaches and what Full Preterist teaches illuminating. It's rather shocking. Just a quick overview. Revelation 20, 25, excuse me, Revelation 21. The whole corporate church glorified and perfected descends from heaven. Full preterism. God dwells in some people on earth. That's how they interpret that. God dwells in some people on earth. Revelation 21. The, 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 the Christian view. The, the heavens and the earth are made new and perfected at the consummation. Full preterism. This is what they say it means. Some people on earth are saved. That's what they say it teaches. Revelation 21, death is removed. Full preterism, death continues. Revelation 21, sorrow is no more. Full preterism, sorrow continues. Revelation 21, pain and tears are a thing of the past. Full preterism, pain and tears continue. Revelation 21, the former things have passed away. Full preterism, Israel as God's covenant nation has passed away. Everything else remains the same, except some people are saved during history. Revelation 21, Christ's salvation reaches a conclusion, a perfection, a realization, a consummation. Death is gone. Satan and Christ's enemies are in the lake of fire. The whole body of the elect is resurrected and glorified and presented at the wedding feast. The whole cosmic order returned to a curseless paradise. Full preterism. Persecuted and uh, martyred saints can take comfort that some people are saved in history. <laughs> that's what they say. That's what they say. The order that exists after Israel is destroyed continues forever. The salvation definitively achieved never reaches consummation, in the full preterist view. Never reaches consummation. Philip Edgecombe Hughes says this. For the great voice that explains the former things have passed away, all that is disfigured and debased, the work of creation, all sorrow and suffering and death itself, the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, will cast no shadow in that holy city, for they shall be no more. Here's David Chilton, before he became a, allegedly he became a full preterist before he died, but he also became a uh, Greek Orthodox, and they deny justification. Quote, the new creation will fill the earth, the whole creation, the whole creation will be renewed, this is true definitively, and it will be absolutely true eschatologically. And it gives us the pattern for our work in between, for it is also to be worked out progressively. A great statement. The children used to be anti-full preterist, but apparently something happened. Now this description, of course, is very personal and touching. All believers who have been persecuted, tortured, and murdered by heathen, heretics, and atheists, can look forward not only to a time of perfect public vindication and justice at the final judgment, but also to a world without suffering, pain, tears, or death. Sin is gone forever. Satan and his followers are in the lake of fire, and God will never again hide his face from us because of iniquity or rebellion. The saints will never again hear lies, slander, and insults. There will never again be persecution or even death. As children of the resurrection unto life, we inherit forever the new heavens and the new earth. Because there is no more sin with the curse and their consequences, there will be no more pain of body or mind, heartache, depression, anguish, mourning, regret, etc., etc., are gone forever. 
So when things are going bad for you, you're a Christian, things are going bad, you're suffering, you're in pain, persevere. Don't forsake the faith. Don't backslide. Persevere. John adds, for the former things have passed away. Now, before we continue, we would do well to consider how full preterists deal with this passage. Now, if one takes the passage seriously and looks at what it actually says, it is totally incompatible with the full preterist paradigm of, of AD 70, of an AD 70 fulfillment. I think the greatest scholar among the full preterists, J. Stuart Russell, insists that, quote, it belongs to the things which must shortly come to pass. It is therefore no vision of the future. It belongs as much to the period called the end of the age as the destruction of Jerusalem does. End of quote. So what does this all apply to, according to J. Stuart Russell? The destruction of Jerusalem and Israel. With this presupposition intact, Russell concludes, quote, that the vision sets forth the blessedness and glorious glory of the heavenly state into which the new way was opened at the end of the age. End of quote. Well, there are a number of serious problems with this interpretation, and this more or less is what full preterists teach. First, Russell, like all other full preterists, assigns salvific significance to the destruction of Israel. <clears throat> he says a new way into the heavenly state was opened by the destruction of Jerusalem. That's not true. He says that with no evidence from Scripture whatsoever. Salvation was perfectly and definitively achieved the moment rose, Jesus rose from the dead. The destruction of Israel was evidential of Christ's exaltation and lordship, but held no redemptive significance. Its significance to redemptive history, it is significant to redemptive history, but it's not redemptive, is that the period, the one generation, of to the Jew first and then the Gentiles, which lasted from about A.D. 30 to A.D. 70, comes to an end. The definitive rejection, uh, rejection of the Old Covenant nation in order that happened when God ripped the temple veil from the top to the bottom, because that's when it happened. The moment Jesus said it is finished, the, the, God rejected the whole temple system. He ripped the temple out and the special Shekinah presence departed from the temple. I forgot, I, I should have looked that up. I wrote a book on Matthew 24. And it's referring to a pa There's a passage in scripture which speaks of this in the Old Testament. God leaves the temple. I'm through with you guys. I'm getting a divorce. And he leaves. That's very significant. Gospel messengers, primarily Paul, Silas, John, Mark, Luke, and later Peter, and perhaps John, went throughout the Roman Empire to tell the Jews of the Diaspora about the fact that their Messiah had come and had achieved a perfect redemption, Matthew 24, 14. Remember, Paul, whenever he went to a town, he always went to the Jews first. Always. He'd go to the synagogue. If they didn't have a synagogue, he'd go down by the river, because Jews had a, a custom. If they didn't have a synagogue, they, for some reason, they liked to go by, down by the river, and they would pray there. That's where Lydia was converted. Gentiles within the nations that compromised the Roman world that came to Christ would understand why Israel was destroyed. God set aside one generation to warn the Jews to repent before Jesus came in judgment against them. And that's very fair and that's very nice because word about Jesus, you know, they didn't have the internet. 
word about Jesus had to get around by word of mouth. So God gave him a generation to turn to the Messiah. The remnant did. The rem those who did not were destroyed, at least those within the land of Israel. So it's significant historically in redemptive history, but it's not a redemptive act. It, it has no redemptive significance. The period of covenantal overlap as the gospel went to the Jews throughout the Roman Empire, and probably Babylon, was completed by AD 70. The time of the Gentiles that began with the Great Commission and the Pentecost is made concrete and emphatic by the official penalty for spiritual adultery that was carried out under Christ's authority by the armies of Rome. The death penalty for adultery. They were covenant breakers. Okay. Second, as we have noted, there was no literal bodily resurrection of the saints, no rapture, no general judgment, or a bodily literal return of Jesus Christ, the theanthropic media in AD 70, which is exactly what scripture teaches. And we've looked at that in detail. We've exegeted several passages. You can't get around these passages. They're there. And they cannot fit. They cannot, there's no possible way to interpret them in an AD 70 period. Did Jesus bodily return to earth in AD 70? Did he come in body? Did people look and see his body? No, he came in judgment. It proved that he was at the right hand of God. The passages that we have considered relating to the second bodily coming, the unity of the eschatological complex, are so clear and abundant that all attempts at reinterpreting the whole orthodox, historic, confessional Christian system of doctrine on this topic in order to fit the full preterist paradigm have been a total failure. Look, I've looked at several of their books. I've read a bunch of their books. I've studied their stuff. It's super unconvincing. It's basically everything happened in AD 70, so we got to scramble and twist scripture and pervert scripture and ignore stuff that doesn't fit into that paradigm. It doesn't work. It does not work. You have to seriously twist scripture and pervert the word of God to get it to work. And that's what they do. They're perverts. Theological perverts and false prophets. Scripture twisting equivocations and ignoring clear biblical teachings is not the biblical or sound way to prove that one's completely new position, it's a new position in history, started in the 1800s, is scriptural or coherent. Third, Russell ignores all the details of the passage and then due to the description of the new state of things, no suffering, pain, or sorrow, or death, concludes that it must be a description of heaven. This is just a very flamboyant way of describing heaven. His only exegetical argument is that the holy city, the New Jerusalem, is always represented in the scriptures as situated in heaven, not on earth. But our text speaks not only about heaven, which in Russell's view must be the third heaven, God's throne room, which is a spiritual place, the second heaven is the atmosphere, the third heaven is the spiritual realm, but a new heaven and a new earth. Why would God call heaven earth? One could argue that a new heaven refers to the spiritual realm above, the third heaven, but when a new earth is used in conjunction with a new heaven, Russell's view is rendered impossible. Where do the scriptures call heaven earth? This would have to be the only passage. The only other places where new heaven and new earth is used is Isaiah, where it describes the effects of the gospel on earth in history. It makes perfect sense of the description of the gospel's blessings on earth during Christ's spiritual conquest 
of the nations in the millennium could be used to describe the complete victory at the second coming and consummation when the salvation process reaches its culmination. In fact, the context and the words used in Revelation 21, and of course 20, demand such an interpretation. They demand such an interpretation. You can't get around what the passage says. They make it say what it doesn't say. In addition, Russell completely ignores the text when it says the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, Revelation 21.2. If it comes down out of heaven, then it must be coming down to earth. This description perfectly fits with the descriptions of what happens to the church when Christ returns bodily, literally, from heaven to earth. The resurrected saints rise out of the graves, they meet him in the air, and then the people who are still alive when he returns meet him in the air to return with him, with the angels, to the final judgment. Further, what would be the point of informing us that the third heaven had no more seas? Even if one interprets seas metaphorically of ethical chaos and rebellion, such a statement still cannot be applied to the third heaven or the throne room of God. There is no sin up there. There is no chaos up there. Russell must do what all full preterists do with consummation texts. Ignore the details and refuse to actually exegete the full passage. And they do that all the time. They don't deal with the whole passage. They'll pick and choose a little here and a little there, and then they twist it to fit their paradigm. But they don't deal with the whole passage. And then John says, God tells John, write it down. In 5b, God orders John to inscripturate what he has seen and heard. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. Now, reiterations given to the apostle to write down God's message are found at crucial points in the book of Revelation. The subject matter of the vision is so important and necessary for a persecuted church's hope, endurance, and perseverance in times of suffering and apparent defeat that they need a copy of it to read, to study, and reread over and over again. They need a full assurance of a public vindication an absolute victory of the gospel in Christ's kingdom at the end of history. God Almighty, speaking from heaven, emphasizes and ratifies the truth of the vision. In addition, emphasis and inscripturation, inscripturation is necessary for the second bodily coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, that is the actual physical bodies that have died coming out of the graves, the rapture, the white throne judgment, and the perfect renewal of the whole creation are all events that occur in the distant future, at the end of the millennium, not near its beginning. AD 70 is nearer the very beginning of the millennium, as full preterists assert. Many generations of time will occur in which the Church of Christ must endure severe trials and savage persecutions from the Jews, from the Romans, from the Papal Church, from Muslims, from prelatists, from communists, from atheists and all anti-Christian statists, from Democrats, from Joe Biden, from the European Union, from Canada, New Zealand, Australia. These atheistic, secular, humanistic perverts, now they may call themselves Christians, as Biden does, but they believe in murdering babies, sacrificing babies to Molech, and they believe the state is God and can uh, make anal sex lawful when it's not lawful. And they can pretend men are women and women are men. It's perversion. 
the great emphasis on what this new heavens and new earth victory means and entails seems rather strange if we were to accept the full preterist view, which is this. This is their view. Take comfort. Some people will go to heaven when they die. That's basically what the passage means to them. But death, suffering, pain, disease, bloodshed, murder, warfare, persecution, Satanism, and rebellion against God and Jesus Christ continue on forever. Take comfort. Some people are going to go to heaven. But things continue on as they are forever. Death, suffering, witchcraft, Satanism, bestiality, sodomy. You name it, it all continues on forever. War, murder, pregnant women slaughtered. It all just goes on. But take comfort. Some people go to heaven. That's, that's what they teach, I'm telling you. In contrast to the full preterist heresy, Herman Bovink beautifully summarizes the teaching of this passage, and we'll end with this. Quote, All that is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, and commendable in the, this whole of creation, in heaven and on earth, is gathered up in the future city of God, renewed, recreated, bolstered to its highest glory. The substance of the city of God is present in this creation, just as the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, as carbon is converted into a diamond, as the grain of wheat upon dying in the ground produces other grains of wheat. As all of nature revives in the spring and dresses up in a beautiful celebrative clothing, as the believing community is formed out of Adam's fallen race, as the, re <coughs> as the resurrected body is raised from the body that is dead and buried in the earth, so too... By the recreating power of Christ, the new heaven and the new earth will one day emerge from the fire-perched elements of this world, radiant in enduring glory and forever set free from the bondage to decay. Romans 8.21 Substantially nothing is lost. Outside indeed are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Revelation 22.15 But in the new heaven and new earth, the world is such as restored. In the believing community, the human race is saved. In that community, which Christ has purchased and gathered from all nations, languages, and tongues, Revelation 5, 9, etc., all the nations, Israel included, maintain their distinct place and calling, Matthew 8, 11, Romans 11, 25, Revelation 21, 24, 22, 2. And all those nations, each in accordance with their own distinct national character, bring into the new Jerusalem all that they have received from God in the way of glory and honor. Revelation 21, 24, 26. The blessings in which the blessed participate are not only spiritual, therefore, but also material and physical in nature. As misguided as it is, along with pagan peoples and some chilius, that is premillennialist, to make the material into the chief component of future blessedness, so it is also one-sided and stoic to regard the physical indifferently, as to exclude it totally from the state of blessedness. Scripture consistently maintains the intimate connectedness of the spiritual and the natural, inasmuch as the world consists of heaven and earth, and humans consist of soul and body. So also sanctity and glory, virtue and happiness, the moral and the natural world. Order ought finally to be harmoniously united. The blessed will therefore not only be free from sin, but also from all the consequences of sin, for ignorance and error, John 6.45, from death, Luke 20, 36, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Revelation 2, 11, and 20, verse 6 and 14. From poverty and disease, from pain and fear, hunger and thirst, cold and heat, 
Matthew 5, 4, Luke 6, 21, Revelation 7, 16 to 17, 21, 4. And from all weakness, dishonor, and corruption, 1 Corinthians 15, 42, etc. End of quote. It's just a summary. According to the full preterist, the original plan of godly dominion given to Adam is never fully carried out or realized in history. For them, the earth remains fallen and full of death and suffering forever. What God in his holy infallible word defines as victory is radically redefined, uh, excuse me, is, is radically different and superior to the heretical neoplatonic full preterist paradigm. And that is why when you read full preterist books, they deny that they, they teach that, that death existed before the fall. Suffering and death existed before the fall, outside of Eden. They have to teach that because they, a defective view of salvation leads to a defective view of paradise before the fall. The world was not fallen. There was no death. There was no destruction. There was no calamity. There was no suffering. What, does God enjoy animal suffering before the fall and does it on purpose because he likes it? No. All of it was because of sin, and we're told that in Romans chapter 8. In other passages. So I hope you can see, number one, that the salvation that Jesus achieved is amazing. The whole body elect, the whole church will be redeemed and presented to Christ as a chaste virgin. Beautiful. And the whole created order will be perfected. All this will happen when Jesus returns, bodily, at the second coming. If you deny that, you're not a Christian. If you deny that, you're a heretic. If you deny that, you teach that Jesus' salvation didn't accomplish what the Bible says it accomplished. And we'll, we're out of time. We'll, we'll, we'll continue next week, Lord willing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much. What an amazing redemption. Amazing. Lord, focus our faith on it. For it's written that we could endure trials and tribulations and persecution and insults and slander and gossip. Ingrain it into our minds, Lord. Give us strength in our faith in it so that we would be willing to sacrifice in the present, right now. Subdue the sinful flesh. To not feed our lust, to fight it and serve Christ with every fiber of our being. In Jesus' name, amen.